I've learned to pare it down. Like, what are we best at? Like, what do we want to be known for? So once we figured that out, I think it's made the business more susceptible to praise because what we're doing is pretty consistent and delicious. I want to be my current self from this point forward. I want to learn how to play piano. Working with human beings. Drinking wine in the middle of the day. I want to be a I'm going to be the next greatest painter. Just kind of work with kids, getting them ahead in life. I want to be a welder. I want to be a beach bum. I want to be a baseball player. Brewmaster. A winemaker. Professional snuggler. Let me mention those sweet, hot lavender baths and writing in the evening. What's up, everybody? This is Blake Fletcher, the Half Hour Intern. In today's episode, I interview Gillian Shaw, who is the owner of Black Jet Baking Company. Gillian's really interesting. She was working at a law firm on the East Coast and just before entering law school to actually to become a a lawyer and further her law career, she decided, you know, forget this and picked up everything and moved to the West Coast and started baking for a living because she was really passionate about baking. So there's a lot of good entrepreneurial lessons here as well as the usual lesson of following your heart plus hard work plus a little bit of luck is always a recipe for good times and a good life. Without further ado, here is Baker. Gillian, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So I'm really excited to do this interview. I think it will be kind of a nice part two almost to the Salsapreneur episode that we had. Mm -hmm. Um, But this, I think, is much more contemporary and much better for somebody that lives in a city environment. So in the Salsapreneur episode, for people to listen to that, that will remember he lived in kind of suburban Phoenix and his whole goal and only real way to get his salsa out there at the time was to just get it into grocery stores because, you know, mm-hmm. it's like 2008 or something like that in suburbia. What else is he going to do? You know, right. But you bake and you live here in a big city, San Francisco. So you're able to get it into much smaller cafes and stuff like that. Right. Right. So. Well, why don't you take us back a little bit to when you started baking and did you just always know that you were going to be a baker? Did you start out doing something else and you ended up baking? I always loved baking as a kid. I was definitely something that I loved to do every single weekend. My dad uh, and my mom were both incredible bakers, so something we always loved to do. Um, I didn't necessarily know I wanted to do it professionally until I was... I went to University of Maryland, and then after that, I was living in Boston working at a law firm, and I was deciding whether or not I was going to go to law school, and then I'd look at law schools, and then I'd look at culinary schools, because I just sort of was looking at school after college of what those options were. Yeah. Why was that? Is that just because you didn't want to be done with college? or you- No, it was sort of, I was I worked at a great firm, and the owner of the firm was really supportive of me and just thought that it would be something that I would be really great at. So awesome. she pushed me towards furthering my education in that way. But as I was doing that, it just didn't feel like that's what I wanted to do. And this sort of itch of wanting to move, wanting to get out of sort of the Boston area and move to California was sort of also happening. So as I was looking at all these culinary schools, the San Francisco uh, Cordon Blue School that I wound up going to had a baking program that was more intense than all the other ones that I was looking at. So it was a nine-month program going eight hours a day, where a lot of the other ones were part-time, you know, ha- half days for a longer period of time, which didn't interest me. So I basically... That's a lot of baking education. It's That's a lot. Crazy. It was fun. It was really, really fun and very intense, but I loved every minute of it. Um, 
so when I did that, I knew instantly that this is what I wanted to do. I was, I was, I knew that I was good at it. How did you decide? I mean, obviously you said the influence from your parents and Mm -hmm. stuff like that, but how did you kick around the idea of just going to regular culinary school to become a chef or was that never even a thought Yeah, I had no desire to do that at all, which is hilarious. It's not that I don't like to cook either, but I just had no desire to do knife skills or anything. Yeah. Did not appeal to me. So when I went to culinary school, I then, part of the classes, it was um, called plate, I think it was like a prepared desserts, something. I can't remember what it was, plated desserts. And part of that curriculum, you had to do a stage at a restaurant. Um, a stage is the term that chefs use for... So like go to a restaurant, maybe work there for a week or two weeks or something like that. But And you just sort of get this intensive um, training in a specific thing that you're going to do. Okay. Um, so sort of for the restaurant to be able to test you out and you to test the rest at restaurant out as well. Um, so I went to Moose's, which was in North Beach. It was this unbelievable sort of institution in the city um, on Washington Square Park. And I got the job, like an actual job, the day that I tried out. That's awesome. Which was hilarious and awesome. And I was also working at Crate and Barrel. And I had just moved to the city. And I didn't know, I think I knew one person who was this buddy of my sister's. Um, and then I worked there for... A couple years and I loved it. How you said they were this institution, were they an overall restaurant institution or specifically for baking? It was a like institution in the city, like a Zuni kind of thing. It was just this sort of old school, badass, awesome restaurant that Ed Moose started. And you can figure out in the city, like, I worked at Moose's with a guy and you can always go back to Moose's. Yeah. Um, So it was just classic American, great California food. So I learned just sort of the classics like creme brulees and that sort of stuff and that training. So you were in charge of all their desserts? Or? I was just, I, I was a pastry cook, so I just worked. Uh, I started out as a plater and then moved up while I was there. Yeah. I met my husband there. So it was just, and I've met some of my best friends from there still. So it was just a great introduction into the restaurant world and then also realizing that I wasn't going to move back. <laughs> yeah. If you're working at a really high level restaurant like that, uh, I mean, how many levels are there to go up if you're even doing something like, like making pastries? Well, there, there was, um, it was actually a small little department. So it was, um, the pastry chef and then there were two, three pastry cooks. So there was one daytime person and then there were two of us at night, um, And then eventually the pastry chef had left and then it was just the three of us sort of running the show. So it was a really small amount of people doing an insane amount of work in a really tiny, tiny spot. So it was just this, I don't know, it taps into this almost team athletic mentality that I love because it was an open kitchen too. So you could... You know, everybody's sort of, you know, going to war and yeah. getting it all done. You're just eyeballing and just, yeah. all the customers. Like, like, oh I God. see you, Table 5. <laughs> yeah. I know you want this You're creme like, brulee. oyster guy's going down. Like, that's going to be me in an hour, you know. So it was it was a great introduction into San Francisco food, which was, I'm really lucky that that was where I landed first. Yeah. Uh, and then from there, I wound up getting a job at the Liberty, which is actually down the street from where we are. And... That was when I realized that I was a baker versus a pastry chef, which was a 
really important deci- just decision for me to figure out for my career. So, so I'm an idiot. What would the difference between the two? Yeah. Be? So I love rustic style breads, or I like you know big pies and pastries and cookies and that kind of stuff. And then at Moose's, it was more refined plated desserts where they're really beautiful with like sugar work on it and decorations and just fancy. And mm. I'm not a fancy girl. I'm more of a, I don't know. We had a joke once where we make toothsome, you know, food, like you can really bite into it. Yeah, for sure. For sure. <laughs> yeah. Like a sturdy dessert, but, um, just the sort of walking into a bakery rather than walking as, or a dessert for a restaurant. Like I love bakeries. I love going into them. I love Still, you know, I love going into a bakery, so cakes and that kind of thing was my what I would rather do with my career. Yeah, for sure. So is that the reason that you, sorry if you were already saying, but is that the reason that you went to Liberty Cafe was for this other opportunity or was there something it else that kind a, of pushed you? It was a really kismet kind of situation where the woman who was leaving the Liberty knew my old chef at Moose's and he said, I think you would be perfect for this. Like based on the style of desserts that I was making for Moose's, he was like, I think you should check this out. You should get, so it was, so the, my first chef who gave me my first job at Moose's then sort of guided me over to the Liberty. So that was, his name is Jeff Amber. So I love him. So it was a great way for me not even to know what I wanted. Cause you can get into the routine of anything, you know, for sure. So to know that, there was a different thing for me to check out was, was awesome. Yeah, for sure. It's like so much of the time you're like an ostrich with just your head in the sand mm-hmm. and you're just working and working. And then every, every now and then you pick your head up, you're like, yeah. what, what? Wait, what is going on right now? <laughs> There's other things happening. Right. So, all right, we're going to just quickly skip over the, the Liberty cafe part. Mm-hmm. So let's just, could we sum it up and say that that's kind of where you earned your chops and yeah, totally. you know, got your skills mm-hmm. in, uh, in pastry making. Mm-hmm. So, and that brings us to black jet. Mm-hmm. So tell us about that. So I left there and I started peddling my cookies, uh, to different cafes around the city. And I was very lucky to, have a friend introduce me to Eileen, who owns Ritual Coffee in the Mission. So, did you start selling your goods before leaving Liberty Cafe, or only after leaving Liberty Cafe? Really, it was just is- after I wound up leaving the Liberty and working at a place in Oakland called Brown Sugar Kitchen, and I was working there and then doing Black Jet at the same time. Um, and so Eileen gave me my first account, which was really exciting. So I was doing cookies for Ritual on Valencia and then also at their spot in uh, Flora Grub Gardens. And then from there, I just very strategically was looking at different neighborhoods in the city that I wanted to be in and then also sort of stalking different <laughs> coffee shops yeah. to see how they handled their pastries, what their vibe was, if we wanted to be in there, if it matched with what we did. And then I would just get in my old Jetta and drive around and just like throw samples at every barista in town to yeah. sort of. And then with each uh, month or that would go by, we'd sort of add a new product to it. So then we started making Pop-Tarts um, or our version of Pop-Tarts. And then... Um, I saw those online. They look so They're good. really fun. We love making those. So then we got picked up by Daily Candy, which sadly is not in existence anymore, which was a, 
uh, email that got sent out about like fun hip things that are happening in the city, and they picked up the pop tarts, and then from then on everything just went up and up and up. So we got exposure, we got national exposure. We were in the Wall Street Journal for the pop tarts. Like it was Holy crazy. Crap. That's crazy. Yeah, and then that all because this one thing found yeah. you. Yeah. Man, that's it's, so cool. It's awesome. So it's, that was our little start. It's so interesting to hear about any company's like tipping point, like the one mm-hmm. thing that pushed them over the edge. Because so often I, it's, you know, it's obviously everyone has to work hard and pay their dues and whatever else. Right. But I always get frustrated when I hear some old man talking about, you know, it's just hard work and that's how <laughs> I got what I got in life and blah, blah, right. blah. Because like anyone that's ever been on this show there, the the tipping point that happens that made their business a real business, like yeah. a very successful business, was completely out of their hands, yeah. more or less. You know, like Absolutely. the fact that these people wrote an article about you. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's crazy. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, so first of all, for anyone that does not live in the Bay Area, Ritual Coffee is like a staple of San Francisco and a really awesome kick-ass coffee shop here. So what an awesome client to get for your very first client. I'm sure that that helped out a lot and meant a lot being able to even tell people, mm-hmm. Hey, it's ritual and not, Hey, it's so-and-so cafe and people being right. like, I'm sorry. I've never heard of that before. Yeah, absolutely. And it also, it gave me confidence to go into other places because everybody knew who ritual was. And also Eileen being a woman business owner was incredibly thoughtful and kind enough to sort of sit me down and talk to me about what I wanted to do. And she's just very, She's excited about things happening and she's excited about San Francisco and she's also a fellow East Coaster. So we just had a lot of things in common. So she sort of guided me in the beginning with what I was doing. So it was sort of this gold mine of opportunity and strength all at the same time. So it was awesome. Yeah. If you could zoom us in really quickly to, let's say, like the two week to one month time frame of after that article was mm. written about you guys. And like what what exactly happened, how things expanded, like what was going through your head? It was, I mean, thrilling to see even Black Jet and Print, you know, it was just this unbelievable. That you yourself did yeah, not Yeah, <laughs> you know, you're like, I still get a kick out of it when I see Black Jet written on our like boxes that come in from the dairy place, you know, just that was really exciting. And then it instantly... um gave again more credit like cred for us to go around and be like we were in daily candy you know blah 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 you should try these pop tarts you know it just sort of gave us confidence that we were doing something that well, plus was if you good. were talking like that then yeah. you're just like <laughs> yeah exuding then you're just confidence like, exactly which is how i talk normally but yeah um and then it also opened up us to national press and we got wall street journal after that so the wall street journal uh, writer at the time, her name is Charlotte Druckmann, who has become a great friend of ours. Um, she picked it up, and then we got national press, and then we were shipping the Pop Tarts after that. So it just sort of snowballed into this awesome experience of press is unbelievable and so kind, and also my parents were blown away and my sister was super excited. Like it was just this great feeling of everyone being like, she's doing it out there. Like this is going to happen. Like this feels good. So it felt like we were on our way. Yeah. I would think. Yeah. Very validating. Right. How, um, how long ago is this? This was about three or four years ago. Okay. So how do you maintain 
that momentum? And how do you like stay inspired, stay making stuff, try to stay like quote unquote on top and not, um, you know, at a point where six months later, you're like, hey, hey guys, remember that time that yeah. article was written about <laughs> yeah. me? And, you know, you're just you feel like you've fallen off or anything. Mm-hmm. How, how do you how do you stay with it? I think it's important to know that while press is wonderful, that it's fleeting at the same time and it and it will come and go and it will come in waves. You know, we'll get this sort of unbelievable luck with things and then sometimes we don't have it. And if you just take the time or we try to take the time to make sure our products are always great, that they're consistent, that we still have fun making them. Like there'll definitely be times where I'm like, you know what? The galettes are kind of bumming me out. I don't want to make them anymore, (laughs) you know? And then we kind of make other stuff. So to, and also to give my baker the ability to say, I'm kind of done with sugar cookies right now, you know, just sort of keep everything fun for us that I think ultimately it will be fun for everybody to eat them. I don't know. I have that in my head that that's true. Whether that is, I don't know, but just that we remain excited about what we're making um, and that we feel proud of everything that we make. I think in the beginning, you're so apt to be like, I'm a baker. I can make that. I can do that. I can do that. And our menu is giant (laughs) because we could essentially make everything, but now I've learned to pare it down. Like, what are we best at? Like, what do we want to be known for? So once we figured that out, I think it's made the business more sustainable and then more susceptible to praise because what we're doing is pretty consistent and delicious. Totally. Well, and you know, if you're selling out of a whole bunch of different coffee shops and stuff, there's only so much they can carry. Right. Exactly. They obviously can't carry everything. Right. So, where do you make your food? Something that we learned about in the Salspreneur episode was a co-packer and mm-hmm. the laws and regulations for you know cooking food. How does that all work for you? We have a beautiful commercial kitchen space in the dog patch. We're in Luke's Locals Kitchen, um, and it's just a great, amazing community of people that are making delicious food. Uh, Luke uh, owns the company Luke's Local, and then he has the rest of the kitchen out as a commissary. So there's six to eight other businesses in there at one time. Man, that's so cool. Yeah, it's fun. So you have your day there or days there or you'll be cooking alongside other people like they got their stuff going on. You got your stuff going on. Exactly. The the latter. So we're in there seven days a week baking and then we'll be alongside. So juice is in there making juice and then there's other pastry people in there. There's other caterers in there. So it's a dynamic space where everybody's making great food and listening to music and hanging out. So it feels that you're a part of a food community all in one thing. And then Luke's is really generous with all of us where we, he makes a meal delivery. He has a meal delivery service and grocery delivery service. So our products are on his site too. So so it's sort of like this awesome collaborative experience. Yeah. How many um, employees do you have now? I have two awesome bakers and a delivery driver. Awesome. Mm -hmm. And how many days a week do you work? (laughs) Seven. Really? Mm -hmm. Wow. That's so crazy. (laughs) And I imagine it's not like eight-hour days? No. Well, Sundays I try very, very hard to keep it um, to like half a day of work. That was a requirement after I got married, that Sundays are sacred and you got to hang out. Yeah. And if 
if you were to not do that, then what the delivery side of your business would kind of fall apart? Yeah. I mean, I've, I've learned lately that I should be doing more outside of baking, that I should be trying to grow the business in other ways. We're actually hiring now for more bakers to sort of extract me from the kitchen, which has been a hard realization when you, you know, want to own a bakery and you want to own a baking company, but the best thing for your business is probably for you not to bake is just a weird thing to wrap your head around, which I'm learning that I need to do that. So um, ultimately I'll hire two more bakers in the next month or something and then extract myself so that I'm more on the office side of things. Yeah. And it's so hard, I imagine, as a business owner to do like the cost benefit analysis of that, you know, mm-hmm. I'm like, all right, I'm going to have to pay this other person, let's say like 40 grand this coming year to bake right. stuff for me. Or I could just be there. Right. Like, is me not being there? Am I going to make another 40 grand for right. my company? And how do you do that math without just rolling the dice and going right. for it? You right. Know? And to have the courage to do that or just to lose and to not bake. You know, I love to bake. I feel at home when I'm baking. Yeah. So that also is in the back of your mind of, I could do that better, (laughs) which is ridiculous. But, you know, that's how I want it done. And taking the time, which I've learned is taking the time to train other people is really rewarding like i have my head baker was an intern for me you know so to see her growth and see what she's done and value her commitment to black jet is just i mean there's nothing better than that you know like that's That's awesome awesome. so i think when i have i just have to realize that that is that's the direction it's going yeah so you mentioned that you have a full-time delivery driver mm-hmm. um, and like I know that you're on the website of this company here in the city. It, it, well, is Good Eggs here in the city or is that mm-hmm. elsewhere? Okay. Yep. So, and they deliver food as well. And I was just wondering like, you know, on Good Eggs, there's cakes mm-hmm. and stuff like how, so if I order a cake, mm-hmm. you bring a cake to my house? I won't. So I, well, no, yeah. <laughs> My delivery guy won't. Yeah. <laughs> For you, maybe. But um, so Good Eggs has a hub. So we deliver to their hub, and then their delivery drivers deliver all around the city. So their hub is actually less than a mile from our kitchen. So it's very convenient. Okay. Then how mm-hmm. often do you have to deliver there? We're the, we're on Good Eggs Tuesdays through Saturdays. Wow. Yeah. Every day. Every day. Damn. That's mm-hmm. crazy. Mm-hmm. Which is, they're great because we can reach the entire city. And and the East Bay and then also South Bay. So it's awesome. It's an awesome way for small businesses in San Francisco to reach clientele without having a brick and mortar shop. So it's sort of this awesome situation where the need for us to have a retail location is fed through good eggs, which I really like. What about, I mean, just the cost of, to, like, I imagine that costs a lot of money to deliver stuff to people, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So we use a delivery driver and then we also use couriers. So it's a lot. It's a okay. huge amount of money to that you should that I have made the mistake of not factoring into my costs, which I've learned to do. Yeah. Because it's with the way sort of business is going in San Francisco or anywhere that people expect delivery and they expect delivery for nothing. Yeah. You know, so it's sort of this crazy situation where you're totally having to like, what do you mean you expect it for nothing? You know, it's not Amazon Prime, you yeah. know, but you have to 
if you want to be in that game, you have to sort of play it, but you have to charge accordingly and make your prices accordingly. Yeah, so that's what that. I was going to say. I imagine, okay, let's say that a chocolate chip cookie of yours at a coffee shop costs $2. Mm-hmm. And let's say on your website to deliver one, it costs $3. Mm-hmm. You still must be making, no, you best basically make no money if you're selling a chocolate chip, yeah. you know, unless the person ordered 100 chocolate chip cookies and right. it was, you know, a $300 order. I, so is it, is it much better for you to be selling out of cafes and stuff like that than it is to be delivering? It's sort of a tricky situation because your Good Eggs is offering a service and so people can get whatever they want whenever they want it. So if people people have, you know love our crackeroons, you know, they might be sold out at that coffee shop or that kind of thing. So this the Good Eggs part of that for us if someone calls me and wants something specifically, I know that they can get it at Good Eggs. I know that they can order it. If I send them to Ritual, some guy might have gone in and got six crackerins and they don't have any, you know? Yeah. So it's sort of this, I know that that can be there, but we're also in the market now on Market Street. So that's been awesome where I have like another physical location to send people when yeah. they call and want specific stuff. And we're also in Rainbow, which is awesome. But yeah, those are big places. So that's big like places. A so we're psyched. And that, for from a business standpoint, the wholesale is easier because, meaning like the cafes and the markets, because we know what we have to make. They're standing orders. We're completely, we know it's dialed in. We can plan our whole weeks around that. But with retail portion, portion or good eggs portion, we don't know what people are going to order. So it's sort of like a... You can predict as much as you want, but you have no clue if it's going to be like a giant Tuesday or nothing. You know, yeah. like you have no clue of what totally. maybe it's somebody's birthday party. You have no idea. Yeah. So it's like this influx of how do you plan and that kind of thing. So that's where the the difference for me is where it's exciting and it's great to be able to reach the city and have a footprint on the city as a baker without an actual bakery location. That's huge. But then it's also like a... a playing of numbers of like i have no idea what to prep for or you know that kind of thing so it's kind of a tricky situation yeah as a business owner when you're first getting started for all those people out there who are maybe getting started or Mm -hmm. want to get started when you're getting started how do you get people to place a standing order with you or do you basically not and you just have to let people walk all over you for a while before you can start being like hey man you need to place a standing order yeah. Like, I can't just be bringing these over here three times a day. <laughs> I think you have to, from the very beginning, you need to have a very set, clear s- what you're capable of. You need to be aware of what you're capable of doing and then stick to just stick to your guns. Just stick to your guns that you know your product is awesome and you know that you're ready for it and that this, these are your terms. These are your, this is what you can do. This is what you need from them in order to, for them to place an order with you and just stick to it. Yeah. In the beginning, I was way too lax on amounts, you know, limits weren't, you know, any of that. So then you're like, you want the business. business yeah. yeah. And you're psyched, you know, and you're flattered that they like your stuff and all of that goes into it. But, I mean, I was delivering all over the city with, you know, $30 worth of stuff, you know, in a box. And you're like, that's crazy. You know, like spent that and, you know, you're not making any money on it. So there, and you also have to have a fine line of 
giving stuff away for people to taste your stuff versus losing money, giving stuff away. Like have like a, we have a very specific amount, you know, that's budgeted in of, you know, try this, you know, da da da, or donate that, you know, donations and all that kind of stuff into our costs so that we know we're able to do that without losing money on it. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, how has, or are you big enough that you're not ins- that you're like insulated from this now? How has the incredible surge in popularity of like eating paleo, completely staying away from sugar, staying away from carbs, affected mm-hmm. your business? Uh, any at all? Do you even notice? I mean, we notice in the questions that we get for sure. Um, I notice that there's this very specific need for that, and I've noticed more and more bakers, you know, popping up around me, sort of contributing to that need. But for us, we've always been unabashedly filled with butter and sugar and salt that we're never going to do that. So it's fine. And I feel like there's a, there's enough people that aren't doing it that it won't affect us, but it definitely is something where I'm amazed at the amount of allergies that are popping up and that they're more common where like the egg allergy in particular, I get so many calls from especially moms looking for, you know, first birthday cakes for kids or with that are allergic to eggs, which sounds horrible to me. Like I can't imagine how awful that is. But other than that, you know, we sort of have our own stamp on, you know, classic American stuff. So people know that we don't do that necessarily. Yeah. The allergies Um, things make sense. I kind of figured that, that, I mean, because diets come and go and trends mm-hmm. come and go. So I imagine most of the food industry is almost kind of insulated from that because right. people are going to buy your stuff or they're not. Right. You know, it's like somebody always wants a cookie. Somebody That's always wants a it. cookie and yeah. somebody's always having a birthday, you yeah. know, so we feel good about that. Yeah. All right. So why don't we wind down the episode? Okay. So if you could offer any advice to somebody that um, was a baker or made like something really good out of their house and they wanted to try to take that to their city into different shops in the city and kind of go through the whole path that you did. What would your advice be to them? My first advice would be to work in a bakery, to work in a commercial kitchen and to work on your feet hard eight to 10 hours a day and really know what that feels like. I think there's a lot of people Um, that I've met that are earnest and really excited about baking. And the physicality of the job is really intense. You have to be able to lift, you know, 50 pound bags of sugar and flour often, you know, that kind of thing. So for me, my first thing would be 100% to work in a bakery, get in there, get dirty, like offer to be an intern. Um, I don't think you necessarily have to go to culinary school, that path that I went. I don't necessarily think that that's what you have to do, but for sure get some actual experience in a kitchen because it will help you. Ultimately, you don't want to make it in your house. You want to work in a commercial kitchen and to have the chops to know how to be in a commercial kitchen is hugely beneficial. Or that you even like it anymore. Right. I mean, there's so many things that look good on paper or, oh, I like this in this environment and you move that into a different environment and all of a sudden it's not so cool anymore, you know? There's nothing cute or glamorous about being a baker at all. You know, like it's a badass. Like you have to be really you know, strong and ready for it. Um, so for me, just know if you love it that much and you'll know, you'll know quick. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and then secondly, if you're taking it to the next level of your own spot is just 
always have the confidence in what you're doing and know that it's going to, you know, just where it's hard work does really help, but to just have the confidence in what you're making and know that people are going to love it. I think that for me, it's easy to forget that when you're, you know, driving around and dropping stuff off and dropping samples and everything else. Like it's just, you get, you can get dejected. It can get really hard and small business owning is no joke. And there are times when the Google bus goes by and you're like, what the fuck? You know, like I should just get on that. You know, I don't know, but there's something really rewarding about it. So I think for me, just to just stick to your guns and know that you did it for a reason. Yeah. Dude, great advice. I love it. Gillian, thank you so much. Thank you so much. This was great. Hey, everyone, it's Blake. I hope you enjoyed the episode. As always, there are links and show notes available on halfhourintern.com. As well, you can follow me on Twitter at halfhourintern or Instagram or Facebook. I've got halfhourintern on those as well. Pretty good at locking down my name on social media. Um, If you guys have any ideas for uh, episodes that you would like to hear about, whether that be a hobby or a career, go ahead and tweet at me at halfhourintern and let me know what you want to hear about, and I will interview someone for you. Thanks so much.